Black Cats Run podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll, and this is Black Cats Run. In today's episode, the long run, we want to try to focus in specifically on the concept of endurance, lactate threshold, if we're going to make a distinction, is perhaps best used to understand the concept of where velocity comes from, but it doesn't really answer the question of endurance, long-distance efforts, and a constant sub-threshold rate might see a 10, 20, 30 beat increase in heart rate across the duration of effort without any increase in power production. What meaning do we make of that? And how can we use that kind of observation to think differently about preparing our body from an endurance and stamina perspective? Let's get into today's episode. Long run is one of those pieces of training for runners, which is kind of this um, very symbolic, totemistic experience. Um, I think it's seen as essential, it's seen as transformative, it's seen as something to be uh, careful of, it's sometimes seen as a sign of, um, a sign of like signifying your level of commitment, how hardcore you are. Um, it communicates about what your intentions are. You know, the 20-mile run has a certain ritualistic status and significance um, that goes beyond any possible meaning as being different from an 18 or a 19-mile run. I don't know of other endurance sports that have a comparable or directly proportional kind of um, liminal transformative, at least in terms of its social construction and meaning kind of, you know, training uh, practice as the long run. It's also something that people tend to look at with a lot of apprehension um, that some people really dread long runs. They find them to be very difficult. Um, Some people believe that they should be avoided. I've had people share the point of view that um, people under the age of 20 should never be allowed to run longer than 13 miles because it's bad for them. Um, So there's a lot of sort of baseless um, beliefs about these kinds of training practices that the long run represents. And I say kinds of training practices because although maybe there's not um, this equivalent uh, symbolic value of endurance session in other sports per se that has the same um, within the sport significance or resonance of the long run in running training. Um, there are other practices that are, you know, fill that same that same space or that same place. So when we think about this, right, we're really looking at the long run as something that I think people don't really fully understand the purpose of its uh, utility. And when I say long run, I use that to mean, 
you know, not just the literal uh, long training run for runners, but again, the sort of long endurance uh, session equivalent for any other sport. So, you know, I think using the long run is sort of this more generic placeholder for all of those different kinds of things. And, you know, I think one of the ways I hear this represented is this idea that uh, if you can run, you know, if you're a great runner, you don't need long runs to run fast or that long runs are something you only need if you do the marathon. It's just like when I was in college running and, you know, maybe this was a product of um, that specific time coming out of the ideas of the late 80s throughout the 90s of this at least interpretation of stuff like Jack Daniels running formula that you just don't really need to run a lot if your training is specific and targeted. Um, you know, and there's, you can find YouTube Jack Daniels saying that, you know, after 40 miles a week, you're basically getting 80 to 90% of everything you're going to get out of your running training. And I don't know if that's true. I don't think that that's true. I don't really see anything that suggests that's true. Uh, overwhelmingly, the evidence says in aggregate that people who train a lot more than 40 miles a week tend to be a lot better. But I also think there are um, a lot of people who don't make it into data tables who are, you know, trying to get beyond, you know, that, that you know, f- you know, five to seven mile a day number, right, which you might say that 45 to 60 minutes a day training um, volume and are not having success. So one aspect of that is people who uh, do not wake up every day and have a desire every day to go out and do that amount of running, to do that amount of training. And if that's the case, right, that's a limiting factor. And if you can't get to the point where that's something that you um, want, a way that you want to spend your time, then that's probably never going to work for you. And I've know plenty of people who have all of the aptitude and the capacity in the world and even seem to be able to enjoy the stuff when they're actually doing it. But then they just more often than not, you know, they wake up in the morning and as at no point in the day do they want to get out and, and do that. Um, so that can be a limiting factor around this stuff. But I also think, and, and for those people, I think that's a, you know, a valid experience, right? They might really want you know, the outcomes and, and to get to that point, and they might genuinely want to want to do it, um, but they're sort of stuck. And maybe that's a different question for a different episode. Um, but we also have people who uh, do push to go beyond that, and then they just don't really see uh, an increasing return. And the idea of the long run is transformative. This idea that, well, if you just start doing these long runs, you're going to show up and be the man is similar to the idea that, well, if you just go out and you start doing more and more miles a week, you're going to be awesome. And that's something where I think we do see um, more of a clear sort of parallel to other sports, right? In running, there's something uh, mythical and um, magical, if you will, that's imbued to the 100-mile training week, Um, you know, and it's kind of like, well, why? I mean, that comes from the Arthur Lydiard thing, but those guys weren't running a hundred miles a week. They were running like 120 to 150 miles a week. And, um, their training strategy wasn't to run a hundred, uh, and 50 miles a week or a hundred miles a week. Their training strategy was to look at their sessions and think about every day when they were training, every time they went out to train, what did they want to accomplish? How did that relate to their goals? And then try to apply 
the strategy that they had in mind. And because of their velocity as an athlete, it led, led to that number. But in other sports that count volume in terms of hours, 20 hours a week is a number, uh, 30 hours a week is sometimes something you hear people talk about, I think, in cycling and, you know, triathlon, for example, you might, you know, sometimes come across people holding up this, you know, 30 hours a week and you see people pushing it up to 30 hours a week. If you spend four weeks training 25 to 29 hours, right? We're basically in two months, you put in about 200 hours and then you look at your training data and your threshold has improved by 10 watts, which basically means it hasn't proved because that's well within a standard deviation. You know, I think that raises questions about what's going on. You know, are you wasting your time? If you genuinely love spending your time doing that every day, then you're not wasting your time. But if you are spending that additional time um, you know, beyond whatever you're sort of self-selected, sort of just only for the enjoyment of the day-to-day exercise would be, which, right, I mean, if you're doing 14 hours a week, which is half of that, that's still two hours a day, which is, you know, not an insignificant amount of time to invest in any kind of physical activity on a day-to-day basis. So if you're investing, you know, double that amount, um, if you're investing 100 miles a week, if you're putting in 50,000 yards or 100,000 yards, I have no idea, right? You know, but if you're, you know, swimming five or six miles a day or something like that, whatever it is, right, you're doing your Nordic training for 20 hours a week, you know, pick your sport, pick your high volume benchmark. Um, why are you doing that, right? Like, how are you arriving at that point? Are you getting the benefit from that that you imagine you should be able to get and I think a lot of times the answer is sort of but also not really and I think the reason why that is the case is because if you are able to do that much volume it's probably the case that a lot of it is going to necessarily have to be at a lower intensity because otherwise it just wouldn't be possible to to do that for multi, for week after week after week it's just not sustainable. Um, but I also think it's the case that, you know, we're not maybe seeing the magnitude of response that we want. But I also think that's where, again, like, what questions are we asking ourselves? So, you know, I think the starting question we should asking is be asking here um, is not, you know, what are the training things that people say are transformative. I talked about this actually in the last episode, right? Of like, how are we selecting the inputs that are going to lead us to try to make determinations about what is and what is not valuable or impactful to do in training? I think if we ask the question, what is the limit on how long we can hold X intensity? I think that's a step towards trying to find something that's more meaningful, right? In terms of figuring out what is the value of what we're trying to do. And when we ask that question, right, that's a different question um, than the question that lactate threshold answers. It's not unrelated, and I'll explain why it's still related in a moment. But it's when we look at this question of how long can we hold X intensity, that's pointing at this issue of stamina. So... You know, speed is like how fast do we have the capacity to actually sort of go for any length of time, regardless of how short. 
um, endurance is the capacity to just go no matter how much we slow down, how long can we continue to go. And then stamina, we can say, refers to how long can we go at a given pace. And uh, one answer, I would say, if we take, take this threshold concept, and well, how can we relate to this? And I think this is where we want to start because we've talked a lot about threshold on this podcast. And I think clarifying how this does relate and doesn't relate then defines the space um, that needs to be answered with something else. So one answer to the question of like, what's the limit on how long we can hold X intensity would be what percentage of lactate threshold that we are engaging. Okay. So simply put, what we see is that when we have uh, blood lactate concentrations that are low, particularly uh, if you're doing, you know, a progressive test, right? And you start at a low enough intensity, if there will be a number of steps where the blood lactate concentration will be very low. And probably, I think for people um, who have a reasonable basic level of aerobic fitness, um, we'll probably see a number of steps where the value is less than one millimole. And then there will be a step of intensity where the lactate concentration will start to increase. And for every increase in intensity after that, the lactate concentration will continue to get higher and higher and higher. And I think that um, what that is a reflection of, right, is the relationship that we experience when we exercise, which is that at the point at which the blood lactate concentration is going up our capacity to sustain X intensity, whatever that X intensity is, is at that higher blood lactate concentration is the duration, potential duration of that is significantly less than it was with less blood lactate concentration. So if we are working at a um, lactate concentration that is, um, excuse me, at a percentage of lactate threshold intensity measured in velocity or power that is below um, that threshold, right? Because that's what the threshold is. It's the point of intensity where if you go beyond that intensity, the blood lactate concentration will start to increase, okay? So when you go, and it doesn't mean that um, you might be able to exercise for quite a while at that intensity without it continuing to go up, but that if you took another additional step in intensity, it would go up again. So it's the point at which any additional steps see a higher level of blood lactate than was available than was measured in the previous level of intensity. Okay. And so this is why people continue to view lactate as this sort of marker um, of fatigue. And it is correlating with that, but um, there and there is something causing this to happen, but it's not the blood lactate. The amount of blood lactate in the blood is not, in my interpretation, destroying our ability to maintain X intensity. Now, I'm interpreting that accumulating lactate as an available metabolite that the body produces in proportion to demand. So if Elliot Kipchoge is probably running five minute pace or 515 pace, his blood lactate is probably 0.8 or 0.7, right? Um, if I'm doing that, my blood lactate is probably 14 to 16, okay? That doesn't mean that I can be Elliot Kipchoge. That's not what I'm saying. But it does mean that, you know, I am also producing probably the, a lot of lactate, right? I'm, my body has to be able, if we're both running 515 pace, 
then both of our bodies have the capacity to produce metabolites sufficient to create that force. But if we view lactate as this preferred metabolite, what do we see? Well, then we see that when lactate concentration is down, now we're more efficient, and a more efficient system can always last for longer. Okay, so what's going on is the blood lactate level is a reflection of our efficiency, and the increasing in concentration of blood lactate is not destroying our ability to maintain what we're doing, okay? It is an indicator probably of how much room for aerobic improvement we have. And when people are posting their, oh, I, this is my peak blood lactate, I've said this before. Yeah, that's kind of interesting on some level, but it's also kind of meaningless on another level. Because it's like, you know, all that represents is that's available metabolite that you don't have the physiological uh, adaptations to take advantage of and convert into actualized energy. But when people insist on interpreting it as, oh, yeah, well, I'm not running fast because the blood lactate is higher. It's like you have, you're struggling. It's more so the case that I'm working really hard, right? I'm really struggling to produce this force, a force that somebody else, like an Elliot Kipchoge or other people, can produce that uh, force needed for them to run that equivalent speed um, very easily, Right? And so what do you see in those cases? The blood lactate is low. right? So it tells us that when we can take advantage of the lactate, we're probably going to be very efficient. When we aren't able to take advantage of the lactate and it's just sitting there in the waiting room, then you know we aren't going to be very efficient. And so that can kind of make it seem like the lactate um, then is the reason for um, limitations in endurance. And I'm not saying that it doesn't have a space in answering the question, how long can we hold X intensity? Uh, But I am saying that it doesn't offer enough of an answer for us to say, well, we've answered that, let's move on. Um, You know, because ultimately lactate threshold is really more about how fast we can go, okay, than it is about how long we can go fast, okay? Yes, we're talking about efficiency, and efficiency, uh, you know, does have an impact on that. But it's, it's not the, the sole explanation. I mean, a simple way to, to recognize this to be true is, you know, people who do additional uh, volume of training that doesn't, that in and of itself wouldn't really have much of an impact on uh, lactate threshold um, seem to do better in competition than people who do um, the same amount of lactate work that does impact lactate threshold without that additional exercise intensity. Um, or actually, maybe we should say more specifically, without that additional low addition of all that low intensity exercise, you know. And another example of that is people who add in longer runs are more likely to sustain for longer, even though the longer run is maybe not really something that is as direct or as sort of specifically uh, impactful to the lactate threshold. Although uh, long runs, long endurance sessions are extremely, you know, like ambiguous or open-ended in terms of how you might interpret that or make meaning out of what that really implies or or entails. So like when we're looking at that from that perspective and we're trying to make sense of what is the impact, what is happening here, you know, it's hard to really know what people are doing because, you know, those, you know, you can say I ran 20 miles and that can mean 20 different things, right? So I think if we recognize this concept here, um, you know, again, right, this is more about how fast we can go when we think about lactate threshold than how long we can go fast. 
So like if we can move a mass with a greater velocity uh, only if we can apply more force, right? So your body has is a certain ma- entity of mass, right, let's say. And if you want that to move faster, we have to apply more force. So if we want to move our body faster, um, then physiologically we need the ability to produce movement through metabolism, which means that we need to be, you know, metabolically converting a greater amount of energy in order to create that greater amount of force. So therefore, it makes sense to interpret uh, lactate production as accumulation as proportional to work demand. That when you exercise, you are making a work demand on the body. The body then makes that metabolic um, stuff available, right? The metabolic capacity, you know, activates. And then, like, we can or cannot do that, you know, based on how fit we are. And that's why we can have this situation where we can sort of, in the short term, create um, create the velocity or apply the force, but then we can't sustain it, right? And so, you know, we already know in general that our ability to produce speed, you know, is not a predictive of our ability to um, sustain speed. And when we're seeing all that lactate accumulate, right, it does mean we're well over our efficiency point, which is why uh, time to failure becomes very short, right? That time to failure gets reduced very rapidly. And it's almost like an exponential reduction in time to failure, which tracks with the exponential uh, increase in fatigue. But in order to like produce this additional velocity, right, when we improve our lactate threshold, um, you know, people are talking about, um, and I don't agree with this, to be clear, people are talking about this idea of like, oh, my body doesn't produce enough lactate for me to go fast. And that they're really interested in this idea of, oh, if, what's your glycolytic max? And they're using blood lactate concentration to determine your glycolytic max. And I just don't see that as making sense because the lactate is a metabolite. And so the increased concentration of, so first of all, it's like, if you are if you have two people who are both running 430 pace, you know, we're both riding 500 watts, and one person has 4 millimoles of lactate, and the other one has 8 millimoles of lactate, that doesn't matter because they're both going the same speed. Okay? And like even if, you know, you might it let's just pretend that neither of them can go any faster than that, okay? It doesn't matter who has more lactate, but there's these paradigms like with triathletes who will say like, oh, well, I have a better glycolytic max. It's like, no, like nobody cares, right? You don't get to the end of a race and then take out a laminated index card and hand it to somebody, you know, like you're playing Go Fish and be like, hey, this is my glycolytic max, what's yours? And then determine the finishing order based on that, right? If you can, all it is is just achieving velocity. And this is why I don't really get the Lionel Sanders fixation with how much lactate he can produce, because who cares? You know, when you're talking about, um, you know, sp- speeds over lactate threshold, you know, especially when you're talking about short-term, you know, force, you you want to be able to just like, that's how fast you can, how fast you're going. That matters. And um, if you probably have less blood lactate, then you're going at that speed probably more efficiency with more efficiency, right? So you're probably more likely to be able to go faster but then what's happening is as we're getting quicker, we're getting to the point um, as our fitness improves where in order to go faster, we're going faster with less perceived work, 
Okay, we're going faster with less perceived work, but we can't actually be going faster without more actual work. So our perception of work, which really, like we say hard work, but it should really be like um, stressful exertion, right? We have reduced or eliminated that feeling of stressful exertion because we're creating that force with efficiency. But we're working um, like six-minute pace. If you weigh 150 pounds, six-minute pace is six-minute pace. You know, and if that takes... You know, if that takes you 310 watts to run six-minute pace or something, then that's what it's going to take you. And the only way it's going to be easier to run 310 watts is if you can produce those 310 watts with a greater level of efficiency. And, you know, you can get good lactate threshold returns on a seven- to eight-hour training schedule with anywhere from three to four, maybe sometimes five, um, of those hours being, you know, 60-minute sessions where you're doing, you know, intervals of where some of that time is lactate threshold intervals and some of that time is sort of easy break, you know, recovery intervals. Um, you can get great returns, right? But what about endurance? That athlete is unlikely to have great endurance, you know, all else being equal, okay? They might have better endurance um, than other people, but we already know that's true, in athletics, that there are people who can spend very little time exercising, training, working out, and can go out and exhibit much better levels of performance than other people. But, you know, I think a lot of times that has to do with they might be racing against other people who just simply are just exhausted, you know, from trying to make improvements. And so then, you know, in the short term, like, or sometimes in the long term, right, if that individual never figures out how to find the balance and not put themselves in exhaustion, they're never going to get better. They're never going to get to that point that they want to be at. So to look at this question in a more concrete way, this is why I want to think about, you know, the long run as an exemplar or the sports specific endurance session as an exemplar, but we're really sort of using this as a additional placeholder, if you will, for the concept of what does endurance really mean in general? What does stamina mean in general? And I do think stamina is probably a better word because I do think that there is the quantity of I can go for a long time, but I just might sort of be decelerating across that period of time versus I can go for a long time, but I and, and I'm not decelerating, right? I'm continuing to persevere at a particular pace. So you can call that, you could say specific endurance or endurance at X, or you can say stamina. I like the word stamina. So that's what I mean. I'm going to mean here when I use the word stamina. So let's think more specifically about what is a long run or what is the long endurance session. Uh, people do them all the time. There's overwhelming real world evidence that they're clearly... Um, beneficial and impactful. Uh, When I coached cross-country, by the last two years of coaching, we had progressed to doing um, an 18-mile run uh, every Monday from the middle of August when we had our first practice until the middle of October, right? And then hopefully um, prior to that over the summer, you know, the runners were going out and were running, you know, 18-mile runs, 20-mile runs periodically as well with a secondary longer run but not as long run during the week too. So then when we came in 
to the season, right? This we weren't trying to introduce this uh, out of nowhere, right? There was a you know process um, of building building into that. So then when we're doing the long runs and we're adding in other sort of more targeted um, managed training sessions, we're not just shoveling all of this stuff out of nowhere. That being said, I had athletes who would not. I mean, this is a classic cross country thing, right? You had athletes who would not train over the summer, like they did not care, (laughs) you know, what I, I said, they were just not gonna do that, you know, or if they did, they were getting input from, you know, other people who didn't believe that, you know, what we were doing was valuable, which I didn't understand the point of showing up and being out of shape. Okay, like, I I don't think that that's something that can be debated. It's not beneficial to have less fitness, because then you're just wasting time, um, and you're just not going to get as fit, right? Because over X period of time, you can only make so much fitness gain compared to where you started. So if you start at a low level of fitness, you can't get in shape. And I had, uh, you know, athletes who would show up and their, you know, folks would, you know, have guided them to not really exercise or run, you know, much over the summer, despite kind of our team's suggested thought process or approach. Uh, because they believed that was going to put them in the best position to be the best runner on the team. And it didn't work, (laughs) you know, and um, it would have been interesting to see if I had kept doing coaching in that particular space over the long term, what what would have happened. I I tend to think that it would have continued to be true. Um, And there are people who do this in college. They just don't really run over the summer, right? A lot of people, it's just if they don't have that environment, they don't have that structure, uh, they just that's just not going to happen. But so with our 18 mile run, that's something I thought was very impactful um, for our athletes. I thought it made a big difference in terms of our capacity to be conditioned to uh, run the races, but also to just be conditioned to do the kinds of workouts that we wanted to do as a part of our overall uh, training routine every week. And you know, I think we did. In the both of those years, we won the state championship and the all-state champions, the so-called meet of champions here in the state of New Hampshire. Um, and, you know, I think it would be a little bit ignorant to say that that was the singular difference maker because we did a lot of things differently compared to our, compared to our competitors. I think we ran a different amount of miles per week. We didn't run uh, the, the most total miles um, in a week, um, there were some rumors that we had run a hundred miles a week, which I guess that would have been cool, but like they weren't, they were maybe running 55 miles a week, maybe 60 miles a week at absolute most. They just, just wouldn't be true to claim that we (laughs) were running a hundred miles a week, but that's that idea of like, oh yeah, right. You know, they're only good because they're overtraining. And I had, you know, some people say that to me in, in, a little bit more indirect, which it's like, I know what you're saying. You know what you're saying. Why not just, you know, call a spade a spade. But I think people feel if they're beating around the bush somehow that it's a more elegant way to sort of criticize or demean uh, what somebody's doing. But it's like, so we're these, the athletes are outperforming everybody. The athletes are not miserable. The athletes are not getting injured, but because we're being perceived as doing a lot of running, Oh, well, you're overtraining, right? Which just shows how people don't understand these concepts. And, um, 
you know, a lot of the conversations about these sports and their ideas are just, you know, weaponizing um, what should be like things that are used to try to reach some meaningful practices and approaches and instead just turning them into clubs to just try to like um, bring people down, which I think is a fair criticism if you have athletes spending lots and lots of time um, exercising and then they're not, they're unhappy, they're not improving, um, you know, they're right they're, they're not getting any additional benefit from what they're doing, maybe they're worse. That's the, yeah, that should be criticized. But we tried to, you know, we had the data to demonstrate that and we had the anecdotal experiences of the athletes to support that, right? So there's a lot of other things we were doing doing well. I also think that, you know, running and feeling that you're training in a, a unique way in that kind of environment can be important for giving yourself uh, confidence, which I don't think confidence can raise your lactate threshold. But I, I think that if you're fit, um, you know, that feeling confident and, and feeling, you know, that, you know, you can be out there and, you know, you belong at that level of the race. I think it can be intimidating to try to like make that transformation um, and, you know, feel that, okay, I can be up here. This is, this is okay. I'm not going to blow up. I'm not going to embarrass myself by, you know, looking like I overreached or whatever in the race. So, you know, there's other benefits too that maybe are not huge, but, you know, probably were present. Um, you know, and anecdotally, I do, I would say, and I would have said this at the time too, that I think the long run certainly seems to increase uh, the time to failure in a race for an athlete. Uh, you know, or we might think of it as like your time to the point of fatigue in a sense, or maybe you might think of it as sort of decelerating the ramp rate from fatigue into the point of failure that maybe you'll sort of get to the point of fatigue, but then you just kind of like stay there, right? Whereas without the long run, people will get to the point of fatigue, uh, maybe earlier, maybe not earlier, but once they're at that point, their staying power, right? Their ability to hold X intensity for Y duration is totally imploded. Um, I will also say that I felt that we seemed to go flat if we went more than uh, two weeks without a long run, because I would always drop the long run, which I tried to put it over the hilliest course that I could find, but I tried to also pick you know, a variation um, for the course, not do the same course every year, but then that was the loop for the season. And prior to those last two years, we were also doing uh, a long run, but it was more like 13, uh, 14 miles. So the 18-mile run was a progression up from that. And, you know, I, and I again, I felt that the runners would go flat after a while. But uh, I also think it's the case, though, too, that, you know, the runners didn't always get to do enough challenging races to really find out, and again, this is assuming the fitness was there, otherwise this would be a useless exercise, um, but to find out if they can really be in those races and to like feel like, you know, comfortable and normalize, you know, that velocity and that intensity and like running, you know, like that and having people around them and people going, you know, whipping by them, you know, recklessly, reckless, unsustainable velocities, you know, these races can, you know, the courses you know, can get pretty congested pretty quickly and it can make it difficult to, you know, try to move up if you start feeling really good and then the people around you are starting to struggle, you can kind of basically be stuck, which doesn't mean 
that you should be taking it out hard, but like finding just that equilibrium, right? And how to navigate that stuff and, and what to do while still racing efficiently with your energy. You know, it's hard to really reach conclusions sometimes about what happens at the end of the season because the environment of those meets, you know, unless you have a really supportive um, school around like taking your team and going out of the way to find you know, big meets, you know, every weekend, every other weekend. And you really do need to do that um, every week, you know, which it's like it's a three mile race once a week. If you can't manage the training for the athletes to recover from one three mile race every week, you've got a bigger problem in terms of your your training for your athletes. So, you know, and this is where, you know, I think my perspective on the value of the long run is, is pretty it's tricky to break this down, you know, and I think for my personal experience, I always felt just that my just better with my running when I would get into and start to feel comfortable on a longer run once a week. Um, you know, but for me, I never really got to see that necessarily transform into anything because like, you're not, I don't, there's so many other variables at play that you're not also sort of controlling or keeping constant. So this is part of this. These kinds of things that make it hard to identify the value of the long run because we have to try to separate our assigned value or the value we ascribe because of influences like tradition to the long run. Um, and we also have to not simply un- and uncritically accept, you know, whatever science founding, sounding thing we find on the Internet um, as gospel. Sometimes people, because... Um, you know, research can be very challenging and frustrating. Um, people will just sort of be more inclined to be like, well, I don't, I'm just going to take this and I guess, hey, this is, this sounds good. This must be true, right? Because they don't really want to have to work for that. So can we try to use a more measured um, IRL example and real life example? Yes, right? And there's probably a lot of those out there. Um, and if you have any experiences or perspectives on, you know, the positives or negatives of of doing longer runs or, you know, longer specific endurance sessions in your training. I'd love to hear what people's perspectives are on that and try to incorporate that into our consideration of this topic going forward. So feel free to send us a message on our Instagram at Black Cats Run. But um, I have an experience last fall where I did a series of 30 milers from August through October. So I guess summer into fall. And I think that, you know, this is an area where I feel I can most definitively demonstrate the experience of a noticeable transformation and my ability to deal with that challenge of going for a distance. So I've done eight, I think, 30 mile runs, you know, eight, approximately 50k runs over the last two and a half years um, which does not make me an ultra athlete and uh, that's actually kind of one of the points is that I think one of our concepts of of what stamina is and how far it's acceptable to train is something that is really like influenced by tradition and our perceptions of like how much is a lot right we're going to then scale and interpret what we're doing relative to that Right. Just like we try to say, like, oh, well, am I training hard enough? Well, what are other people doing? OK, well, I'm, I'm doing that, too. So that's good. I'm training hard enough. So that means I'm going to get better. That's a really stupid, non-rational way to try to reach conclusions. And so these eight runs, this is just kind of the scale of the sample size. 
So I just threw in the the other three that I had done um, prior to that sort of more um, sort of com- compressed, compacted, or more consistent series, I guess, of five there just for some context. Um, and I don't, I don't, I know that there are people who do longer runs that are much better than this, but for me, this is a data point that's worth, uh, I think, assessing because this is the longest runs that I've ever done. I think that they're pretty, I found them to be fairly challenging, um, some more challenging than others, <laughs> as you're probably going to hear here. So the first one I did in February 28th of 20. 21 and this was like as is true with some of these um a lot of these was sort of more impulsive than prepared for and that loop was about looking at my Strava was 29.5 miles it averaged 845 pace it took four hours and 18 minutes and I felt great until we got to about um 22 23 miles And then I started to feel like cooked, like literally cooked. I find in these long distance efforts, and this was in, again, in the winter. So it was quite cool um, that like, I literally start to feel like my brain is in my skull has been like, my skull has been plugged into the wall. Like it's a crock pot and like, I'm starting to get cooked. And I feel like that sense of overheating, but not in like a heat stroke way, but just like I'm, like I'm like an engine. That's what I imagined if I was an engine having overheated, assuming that car engines have consciousness, which they don't, um, but what that might feel like. And, you know, over the course of that run in the first third of that run, my heart rate was in the one thirties and one forties. And by the last hour of this run, you know, maybe even the last 90 minutes is my heart rate was in the one sixties to one seventies, but my velocity was not changing and this um this is the theme that i want to emphasize to people here is that uh, a lot of times you have this scaling of heart rate across the duration of the session and um, that doesn't always by the way correlate to feeling uh badly um but sometimes it does and you know by a lot of like this is i did an episode called the heart knows where i talked about what i feel the limitations are of using heart rate as a as a training tool or as a training measurable because I think when we're doing this stuff like it's very easy to fall into the trap of like oh well the heart rate means this and so but like when you do efforts of this length what you realize is that the force you're doing the work you're doing is not changing but the heart rate goes up and up and up So this idea that the heart rate tells you how hard you're working, this is one of the reasons why I don't think that that's ultimately really a very valid conclusion. I think it's a reflection of stress, um, but it isn't even a reflection of like quality of performance because for some, I've had, you know, sometimes doing these longer things where I've found the heart rate going up and up and still have felt pretty good and just kept going right along. And then I've had ones where I felt good and the heart rate has stayed steady the, soul, the whole time, right? So I, that's where it's the whole thing. There's more variables that influence that. Now, what I would really want to know with these examples is what the heck was going on with the blood lactate, for instance. Um, I didn't, I don't have that data. Um, you know, maybe in the future, I'll see if I can try to do something like that if I'm feeling uh, motivated to go out and do 30, multiple 30-mile 30 runs with lactate testing at fixed intervals. It's kind of a tall order 
Um, but if that's something that you're interested in, let me know, and maybe that will encourage me to get my butt out the door and try that stuff at some point over the winter. Um, so the, uh, the second one I did was basically a year later. That was at the beginning of January of last year. So January 2nd, 2022, and that was 30.4 miles. And that was a cool run because there's also 3,600 feet of climbing, um, you know, without going on trail. So it was just on paved roads or, or dirt roads, um, but all, you know, maintained, you know, roadways. And that was like 905 pace. And that took four hours and 35 minutes. And I felt good the whole way on, on this one. And uh, my heart rate was consistently uh, 140s to 150s um, the whole way. But it was probably the worst incidence of uh, nipple chafing I've ever experienced. I had a white uh, wool merino long sleeve on as my sort of base layer shirt. And when I finished, I took off my other layers. I had these like palm sized blood stains, <laughs> you know, on <laughs> top of my shirt. That was bizarre because I didn't feel any abrasion, thank goodness, but um, that was pretty wild. So I felt good, but apparently I was, I was hemorrhaging blood through my man mammaries as I went. Um, so then we did, I did another one that year that was, um, March that was 33 miles that took four hours and 49 minutes. And that was like 845 pace. And, um, the part rate went from the one forties to the one sixties. And, you know, I wouldn't say that I tied up, but, uh, you know, I got, it got harder, but I think a lot of that was just definitely that I was getting thirsty and tired, but I wasn't struggling. Right. So you know, you're seeing some heart rate variation here. So then, all right, so these are my experiences with these before getting into this stretch. So then the next three uh, I did over um, from the last day of July, I did one on uh, July 31st, August 19th, um, which was a race. Uh, and then I did one on September 2nd, September 18th and October 2nd. So over that time span of, I guess, you know, you could probably simplify that and say that was basically like August, September, right? So approximately two months. So the first one was a nightmare. It was uh, extremely hot. I was running exclusively on this logging road around a lake in the backwoods in Maine. Um, and that took almost five hours. And I really just started dying at 18 and 19 miles and, you know, I think my heart rate was probably 140s to the first half. And then even slowing down dramatically, my heart rate was still 20 beats higher over the last 10 miles. And I got to the point where first after lying in a stream, in a culvert that went under the road for 10 minutes, I was just sort of like jogging in the parts that were in the shade and then just sort of walking through the parts that were in the sun and like just so very moderate, very low effort, but the heart rate was still, you know, pretty high. But that was just, that was a nightmare. That was probably the worst one on this list. Uh, then the one I did um, in the sort of middle to end of August was at that, the Gravel Worlds race that has come up before on the pod, but that was the race where you did the 50K run. And then the next day um, you did the 150 mile gravel race. And that was like 9-11 pace, and um, I don't think I did 
any run longer than 11 miles between the death march in the main woods and then this one so this took about four hours and 49 minutes and uh i was this one i felt awesome for 23 miles and then i was just dying like a pig and my heart rate was 150 for probably the first half of the race and then probably by the last 45 minutes you know my heart rate was in the 180s (laughs) and i was every every step was a struggle that was one of those things where it's not like I can't maintain the speed the way it feels if you're running like the 800 or you're doing a middle distance, short distance race. It was just a like the it was just an incredible amount of of difficulty. Right, my legs were so heavy, um, and it was you know kind of weird because the one before this I couldn't uh, run the whole distance, and then the one I did subsequent to this on the 18th. Um, on September 2nd, um, really wasn't a 30 mile run. I was just doing a 30 mile run with a friend of mine and it was supposed to be right a 50 K loop. And then I got to 21 miles and I just like failed. And there my heart rate went from the low one forties to by the, up until the last few miles before I got to the point where I was just like, I'm done. You know, my heart was in the one seventies and I don't always look at it. It's just like, I feel bad. And, you know, for me, I don't feel like I'm hyperventilating when my heart rate is in the 170s, but there is just sort of this general sense of like, I feel like I'm working really hard to go pretty slow. Um, And afterwards, when I saw that, I was like, okay, wow, you know, I guess a little bit validating because in the past without heart rate stuff, you just kind of think what's wrong with me? Am I mentally weak? Because you're not trying to go any faster, but all of a sudden you're, you're struggling. Um, And, you know, that was like an, that 21 miles was like 914 pace. <laughs> so it was not anything remarkable. Um, you know, one of the things is it's a lot harder to do these in, in the summer, right? So that's another factor we're seeing for endurance um, is that the conditions in which you're doing these sessions seems to have a big impact. And you can be significantly stronger, um, at least in terms of the substance of what you're able to create from your training. Um, then in the winter, right, if the weather is the right weather for you, then uh, in the summer. So then on the uh, 18th, we did the same loop again, you know, so a couple weeks later. And so I did the whole loop, 50K, 31.6 miles or whatever that is. And uh, that took 441. And that was 854 pace for me. And I was in the 130 starting. And then this time I started getting tired, but I kept I kept going. It was not pleasant. I just really struggled the last nine miles and I was in the 170 beats a minute. And then when I get to the last one, so if we think about this as a series of five over uh, basically two months, um, on October 2nd, I do the last one, uh, you know, same loop that I had done previously. And I that one I did at 830 pace. And so I took 439. Um, and that was 140s to uh, 170s, 180s. But uh, we were running, the three of us were out there, including Jillian, who, you know, blew up and couldn't run anymore after like 18 miles. So uh, I felt badly and so that she was stuck out there. Um, so I was like, okay, well, I guess we'll run faster to get back to the car. Um, which in hindsight, I don't really know why I did that. Like, what was the point? But, um, 
you know, I ran the last 10 miles at like 720 pace. So my heart rate was higher because I was doing that, but I, you know, felt very strong, you know, doing that. And so I get to the end of this, you know, cycle, if you want to call it a cycle or this phase of doing these, you know, five fifty kilometer ish plus or minus efforts, um, or at least intended to be about 50 kilometers. If you set aside the one in the middle where I struggled and write, okay, by the last one, now I'm starting to feel pretty competent at this. And then, you know, as is the way with these things, I didn't continue to do 50 kilometer runs <laughs> as I, as I went forward. Um, so it seemed like what was unique was for this run was so long and I got very tired and I would spend a while being tired. I would get to the point where I couldn't run anymore. And yet by the fifth one, you know, in basically two months, I felt great the whole way. Uh, yeah, and I freely admit that I lack the motivation that is needed to go out and run four and a half to five hours by myself. You know, I think, you know, partly it's because the potential rewards in terms of racing are ambiguous at best for me. Uh, like, it's not like I'm competing to win some big prize or do some really exciting race or event, right? So like sense of like, well, what's my return on investment? You know, my return on my ability to run 30 miles is a lot better, but like, you know, at a certain point, it's like, well, that's a huge chunk of my time, you know, on the weekend. Um, it's not something that I can just do any day. Right. And then it's like, really, you're really, you are pretty tired. And then if you had to go to work the next day, it's like you're a total zombie. Um, and, uh, it's not like the workplace, you know, has a nap room set aside for you. <laughs> so, you know, I think that it would have been interesting to keep going with that, you know, every three weeks and see what the continued effect would have been. But uh, I haven't had the motivation to do that. I think maybe with a different sense of like value or outcome, I think it would have, I would have wanted to keep, keep doing that. But for me, it's like, okay, unless somebody else wants to go out and do this stuff, uh, you know, what's the point <laughs> at that, at, after that? Cause again, that's a huge, um, you know, amount of time. And then the whole day just sort of is a wash because then you're just totally, you're pretty wiped out. Um, and it's not that it's like not fun and rewarding to do. It's just like, you know, to keep up with that. Right. But that's, I think the point, right. Is like one of the challenges we see is like continuing to want to go out and do it, you know, because of the sense of like, well, to keep you know, probably the best way to stay good at running 50K would be to continue to run 50K. And, you know, if you're probably a super fit athlete, maybe you can do that in three hours. Well, now you're dealing with a whole different can of beans, right? Versus me trying to be out there, maybe on a, on my best day, I'm running, I've only ever done this, done this stuff at 830 pace, which I, you know, I feel great about that. But, you know, on the scale of, you know, what people can do, that's a joke for that kind of a distance. I think I, you know, saw something the other day that uh, guy ran 50 miles and like world record, you know, it was like 545 pace for 50 miles on the road. <laughs> so, you know, right, you and these people, it's not as publicized because it's not like, you know, it just doesn't have that social status. But, you know, that's incredible to me. Right. Somebody running 545 pace for that long, you know, um, but that right there, right, raises some questions about like endurance, right? Obviously, you would conclude that he must have a pretty good lactate threshold, but right, you know, what about other factors, right? What's he doing to get the endurance to hold hold that kind of a tempo for fifty miles? So, but another question, right, in pursuit of that answer, is to ask like, what is it that was changing for me that improved my 
ability to do these runs, right? And then, you know, a secondary question is, was this the best way to do this, to just go out and throw myself against this barrier of 50-kilometer run every couple weeks and then just like, and then eventually, right, I get better. But like there was a lot of trauma and, and epic struggle, you know, in there to to reach that finish line of, you know, adaptive capacity. So like, you know, at the same time, right, again, it's not that I was do, doing less work, but I was getting more efficient doing the work. And I was actually doing the last one, I did the most work because I went the fastest, especially over the last 10 miles. And, you know, and for me in general, like I wasn't going out, I don't usually go out and run 10 mile runs at seven in 72 minutes, you know? So that was the other thing that was weird about some of these, um, is that I had big sections in some of these loops where I was running, you know, much stronger than I would, you know, going out in the morning before work, if I'm you know, doing, doing a run at five thirty or whatever, and, and I'm not going to go out and just, I don't casually go out and run, 10 miles in 72 minutes. That's just not something that I do, right? So then in the context of this run to be going out and doing it, and I think a lot of people have experienced this where you get in these long runs and you just start feeling really great. Um, And then you turn around and you go to do a race and then it's not there anymore, right? So, you know, there's also the question of like recovery um, and, and what was going on with that. So I don't, you know, I don't think that the adaptation for the endurance happens because of getting to the point of fatigue, uh, because I don't want to confuse this example with this sort of idea of validating this failure training. Um, I wasn't trying to train into failure. It's just like that's sometimes what happened. I was actually trying not to use energy. I was trying to go as easy as possible, um, but you know, still actively be running. And then it just happened that you know you, you get to the point of of exhaustion, right? Like if you're just not conditioned enough to go that far, then it's just not going to happen, at least not at a, a exertion where you continue to run the whole way. So, you know, if we take this notion, though, um, of the value of a long run, right? And how do we perceive that? And we say that the something is happening in the long run that is impacting where we get to this point of fatigue and then sort of by being in that state of fatigue, and then if we revisit that with frequency, we start to become less um, easily like brought down by that fatigue. We become more resistant to the fatigue, which is also to say that we basically become more efficient and it feels subjectively easier to do more work. So what's going on there and, and what's driving that and the better we could get at identifying what's really driving that, the better we're going to be at figuring out how to reach an interpretation about what would really improve um, our endurance fitness uh, going forward. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Uh, we're going to have a follow-up where we're going to talk about uh, in a follow-up episode about some other ideas or suggestions about how to try to pursue or break down the value of the long run or whatever the alternative sport equivalent to the long run is, how we could try to then take that understanding to better incorporate the developments of endurance and stamina into our training process. 
So if you've enjoyed this episode or other episodes on the podcast, uh, we'd love it if you'd recommend to other people that find it interesting. You can also check us out on our Instagram page at Black Cats Run. Please feel free to send us a message if there's anything that you're interested in that you'd like to hear uh, more about or other topics that haven't been addressed but you'd like to see be addressed if um, they're relatively short straightforward questions or questions that wouldn't maybe make a whole episode if we get enough of them uh, maybe we could do an episode where we just go through a series of, of listener questions and respond to those thanks for listening we'll catch you next time